Today, we're going to be in chapter 34 of Deuteronomy. So if you have your own Bible, feel free, open up. If you're new to the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We're five in at the very end, chapter 34. If you hit Joshua, Judges, you've gone too far. That's where we are today. And as you turn there... um, offer some reflections that I've had this week. As a particular, as I've been reflecting on this text, we're, we're looking at the life and death of Moses today. And it's made me think about just the nature of memorials, in particular in the church, the bittersweet nature of memorial services here. And the, we say that because there is a, obviously a difficulty and a sorrow to the grieving process when we lose a loved one. The whole that's there and that remains even after everyone else has kind of moved on. At the same time, when we come together as a church to celebrate the life of someone from our midst, there's a sweetness generally to the service as we get to hear about the memories of this person's life. You go to a memorial service, you will hear lots of laughter. There will be smiles as people share and testify to the way God moved in and through their life. Just over a year ago, I um, was serving the Russell family as they were preparing the memorial service for, for uh, Sean Russell, who died far too young. His, his son and his daughter-in-law attend here. And during these services, we put together a, a section that we call Lessons from a Life, or Lessons of a Life. And as I listened to to the family and to friends, something became overwhelmingly clear about this man, about Sean Russell, that he he was someone who poured sacrificially in his love for his family. And I just got that from all, from every, every possible direction. And it was kind of in the midst of those conversations and in the midst of the memorial, not just in the part that I shared, but then in hearing from everywhere else, that it became very clear to me that God, one, was glorified in, that, in, in the love that Sean demonstrated to his family. But two, God's love, God, God was glorified in the remembering of Sean, in the memorial. That his life was actually a platform for the proclamation of the gospel. I just want to say to the Russell family, it's been a little over a year. Again, it's easy for others to move on. We know you still feel that loss. You're loved. But as we open to Deuteronomy chapter 34 today, as we look at the life of Moses, someone who did amazing things, someone who had an amazing and adventurous life, in the same way we want his life to be a platform for the proclamation of the gospel. We want his memory to not point to his greatness, right, but to God's glory. That's the goal. That's the point. That's where we're going today. So we're going to read... Deuteronomy chapter 34, and it's 12 verses, so we're going to read the whole thing. So join with me. It says, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of of, of Pisgah, which faces Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan. All of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea. There's a bunch of different tribes of Israel. The Negev and the plain and the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms as far as Zoar. The Lord then said to him, this is the land I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross into it. Alan referenced this a 
few weeks ago. We're going to come back to it. Verse 5, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the Lord's word. He buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, facing Beth Peor, and no one to this day knows where his grave is. Consider this personally. It doesn't say this in the text. I think this is a bit of God's grace, because how easy is it for us to turn heroes into gods, right? And who knows what would have happened with Moses for some of the people if they knew where he was buried. It says, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not weak and his vitality had not left him. Dude, had some fight left in him. All right, his timing was God's timing. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. God provided for a transition of power. A transition of leadership, one might say. No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to all his land, and for all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of Israel. Three points today, three lessons as we reflect on the life, death of Moses. First, we're going to see that God's glory in the life of Moses, okay? Second, and second and third are reversed from your bulletin, be warned. Second, we see God's grace in the last days of Moses. And third, we're going to see God's faithfulness in the land promised to Israel. And so first, we see God's glory in the life of Moses. We're actually going to start at the end, and we're going to work our way backwards as we go through the text. So back down to those bottom three verses. We're going to say it again. No prophet, Moses was unique. No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Some people might say, wait a second. Doesn't it say that God turned his back on him in that other text? Why is it saying here is face to face? That is an anthropomorphism. Okay, the text is saying something about God in both of those situations. One referring to glory, or right here talking about intimacy. Uh, if you have questions about that, we can talk more about it later. We've got to move on. He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his officials, to all his land, and for all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of Israel. Now, Moses did some pretty epic things. And the book of Deuteronomy ends with laying out the fact this guy was unique. He did some pretty epic things. He did the things that God sent him to do. And if you don't know a lot about Moses, he grew up knowing what it was to be Egyptian royalty. He left that. He ended up being a shepherd. And then God calls Moses, being a shepherd, to go back to confront the king in, in order to release God's people. And he would lead those people. And all along the way, there were difficult things that God tasked Moses with. And Moses had sometimes seemed to possibly lack some confidence. And God would call him and press him. And eventually Moses, when God would ask him hard, uncomfortable things, would say yes. But what I love is that Hebrews 11 taps into this with slightly more detail. And if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, it says that by faith, Moses after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. Verse 24, by faith Moses, 
when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeing pleasure of sin. Verse 26, for he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger. For Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. By faith, he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. By faith. Over the course of Moses' life, God asked him to step into hard situations. God asked Moses to step into uncomfortable situations. It was not easy to leave, the life, to leave a life of luxury. It was not easy to leave whatever stability he had as a shepherd and go and begin confronting the king of Egypt. Okay? I just want you to think for a moment. Some of you would struggle to confront a friend who has coffee breath and is just like violating you with it. Right? Moses had to go confront the king and announce plague after plague after plague after plague. And then he had to deal with grumbling people as he led them. Uh, time and time again, God called him, and into those difficult, into those uncomfortable situations, Moses' response was, yes. Why? In faith, because his focus was on God. And this week, as I've grappled for the last two weeks with this idea that Moses said yes to hard things, that Moses was willing to step into uncomfortable things. Why? Because God called him, because he listened, and because he stepped in faith. I've been forced to reflect in contrast to Moses saying yes to the uncomfortable and yet good things. How the enemy in our nation in particular has seduced Americans into an obsession with comfort. A complete and total aversion to discomfort. Now follow me for a moment. We're going to come back to the spiritual in a, mo in, in, in a minute. But I just want you to think about the fact that our lives are full of things, opportunities, choices, in which you get to choose a good thing that is good for you and good for your long-term health, relationships, whatever. Good things, however, they're uncomfortable. And we have these in all different sorts of spheres of our life. And for many of us, we avoid that discomfort like the plague, pun intended. I'll give you a few examples. And I'm guilty of this as well. Talk about relational uh, discomfort. It's uncomfortable to confront a friend. I mentioned that earlier. We're just going to come back to it. That's uncomfortable. It's so much easier to ghost someone who said something you don't like, who mentioned something in a group that offended you. Like, it is just so much easier to just nix it than to go to that person and lovingly confront. Note, some of you hear that word lovingly. That's important in the whole confrontation, but to lovingly confront them. And so, because it's uncomfortable, pass. In the world of our finances, it is uncomfortable. The prompting of the Spirit, you may feel the prompting you, make it very, very clear that you're to give in a particular direction for it to be sacrificial, for it to cost you something, perhaps a, a particular comfort. But when you find so much comfort in that number you see on the screen when you dial into your 401k, that's uncomfortable. 
in the world of health or fitness, exercise is not comfortable. Yeah, it may be great for you, but it's not comfortable. Healthy food often is not comfortable. When you've had a hard day, you do not turn to broccoli for comfort. I'd be willing to bet money unless you, unless you pour all sorts of oil and salt and all sorts of other things on top of it. I shared last year in a sermon about hot therapy and cold therapy, that those are things that have immense health benefits. They're uncomfortable. I personally started taking cold showers at the beginning of the year. Try most days, I start with a cold shower. It's very uncomfortable. It's one of the few boxes on the things I'm listing that I, I'm actually checking right now. But I do it because there's a lot of health benefits. What about fasting? That's something that I couldn't tell you the last time I fasted. I've been thinking about this. Dr. David Sinclair who's a researcher at Harvard on genetics and longevity and a bunch of his peers. You know, you watch interviews with these guys and you say, what's one thing that extends someone's life and makes them healthier? They would say, talk to your doctor about an appropriate way for you to fast. Easiest way to get healthier, to live longer, to be, is, to, is to inject fasting into your life. Now that's so interesting considering God's people have been fasting for thousands of years. But not Americans. We do a reverse fast. It's called October 31st to New Year's. It's where we reverse fast. All of these things are uncomfortable. And I just think, in my own life, if my life is crafted around avoiding discomfort wherever possible, if when I find myself in an uncomfortable place around uncomfortable people, if I find myself thinking, God, get me out of here, instead of, God, why do you want me here? If everything in my life is bouncing comfort to comfort, such that the uncomfortable options, many of which I just mentioned to you, are no longer even considered options. How dare I have the pride to think that when a spiritual opportunity of discomfort that would be for the good of God's kingdom comes my way, that I'm going to embrace it wholeheartedly. I think this is one of the ways the enemy has seduced America with comfort. We don't do the uncomfortable good things. We avoid them at all costs. And so I think as we consider our American aversion to discomfort. Perhaps some of us have an addiction there to comfort that we need to think and reflect on, that we need to bring God into. Luke 14 says this, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me can't be my disciple. And a cross is really uncomfortable. But my hope would be that as you go about your normal every day, that when the Spirit prompts you, you that person who's sitting by themselves, go sit with them. Yeah, it's uncomfortable, but you do it. That when you're in a conversation with someone, perhaps a friend or a family member who doesn't know Jesus, and they're talking about how stressed they are, this tragedy that just befell them, that the Spirit prompts you to say, can I pray for you? And that might be uncomfortable, but you do it. That when you know someone might be... You cross paths with someone and you feel the Spirit prompting you to invite them to a church or an event, that you would do it. Someone shares good news with you. All you got to do is say, Praise God. That's a testimony. 
That might be uncomfortable with you, but perhaps at the Spirit's prompting, you would do it. That when persecution comes, if it comes, that you would face it like the fighter, like the warrior, with the armor that we're armed with, despite the fact that it'd be uncomfortable. We see God's glory in the life of Moses, and as I've pointed out in faith, when God handed him hard things and uncomfortable things, Moses said yes, and my hope for us would be that with the Spirit indwelling us, we would be able to do the same. All right, point number two, we see God's grace in the last days of Moses. Deuteronomy 34 verses 4 through 8. We're moving backwards. He says, The Lord then said to him, This is the land I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you're new to the Bible, those are the patriarchs. Those came several hundred years prior. God made promises to these men out of the descendants of these men would become Israel and that, that, and that those people would inherit the land that we're talking about now. This is the land I promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross into it. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the Lord's word. He buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, facing Beth Peor. And no one to this day knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 when he died. His eyes were not weak. His vitality had not left him. Now Moses, as Alan mentioned, just a couple weeks ago. He was prevented from entering the land because he had a mess up. That at one point, and we're not going to go there, he, he did a few weeks, so you can go look, look it up if, if you want. That at one point, God told Moses to speak to a rock in order that the people would receive water to drink. And Moses whacked it. Now, you hear that. And some of us, our gut reaction is, that's it? He can't go into the land after all he did because he whacked a rock? And you think back to the earliest chapters of Genesis. Why were Adam and Eve cast out of the garden? Took a bite of a fruit? That's it? It's not the act itself, but the heart of rebellion behind it. In the church, we call that sin. We call that sinfulness. And the reason in this passage, the reason I say that we see God's grace in the last days of Moses is because Moses didn't deserve the land. And not only that, none of the people did. You gotta twist the way that you see the situation because we look at it and think, how come Moses didn't get in? And the better question is, why did God let anybody in? They're all sinners. And he decided to draw that line between the generations. And he made that call and I didn't. And I don't know why he drew that line where he did at a certain age. That certain people would pass in the next generation. But he did. And we trust that there is goodness in his plan. Beyond the things that we have answers for. But the truth is that no one deserved to enter into the land. And today, but, 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 God still took him to the mountain. And what did he do? He let him see it. He gave him a glimpse. He let him see a picture of his faithfulness, a picture of the promise that he had spent so much of his life investing in. But he didn't get in. He didn't deserve it. And no one did. People have the same kind of reaction 
that question, this doesn't seem fair, that question, this seems kind of harsh. People have the same kind of reaction today when we talk about heaven and hell. When we talk about people, every time we speak and welcome aboard about heaven and hell, this is one of those things that pops up and sometimes there's questions. It's an offensive notion in our culture, especially in a world that wants people to believe every way gets you to God. So do whatever you want and then things will be fine now and forever. Do whatever you want. That's completely different from what we see in scripture and in the teachings of Jesus. And what we tell people in our welcome aboard class is what you want in this life, you get for eternity. And if you want Jesus, now you get Jesus forever. And if you don't want Jesus now, you don't get Jesus forever. And a world without Jesus, an eternity without Jesus, an eternity separated from the very presence of God is what we call hell. But the truth is, no one deserves heaven. James 2 says, whoever keeps the whole law but violates just one is guilty of breaking it all. Such that no one deserves. That means the standard of perfection for me to have a relationship with a holy and perfect God is perfection. I gossip once and that's broken. I covet once and that's broken. I look at someone in a sexually inappropriate way once and that's broken. I lust after an item in my possession. I I find an ultimate sense of hope or identity in a gift from God as opposed to God himself. It's broken. It only takes one. And that offense has to be reconciled somehow. Let me share an analogy. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that one of my sons, I have a, a six, five, two-year-old boy, nine-month-year-old girl, and all of them at some point have really enjoyed the book Harold and the Purple Crayon. Now, Harold and the Purple Crayon is a story about a child who draws his own adventure with a purple crayon. And so it is not uncommon for children to be very excited about drawing their own adventure with a purple something after reading this book. So let's imagine that when I'm not around in this room that one of my children grabs, we'll call it a purple permanent marker. (laughs) And we're to go to town on the couch. Okay? Let's imagine this were to take place. That is an offense against their, their father. It's not their couch. It's my couch. The smart aleck would say, it's God's couch. Yeah, we get it. (laughs) Just play with me for a moment. In that moment, how do you proceed? Someone pays a price. Either I force my child to pay for it with the guilt that I assault them with for making this terrible decision, with the chores that I assign, assign them to try to compensate with their time, as of little value that may be, for the cost of this couch. Maybe have them vainly scrub it for a little while, even though I know it's not going to get the ink out. I can make them pay for it. Or I pay for it. 
Either we go out, we, we remove the couch, we go without, I try to clean it, I go out and I buy another one. Someone pays, okay? Forgiveness, forgiveness is me absorbing the cost of my child's offense. That's forgiveness. God looked down on you and me, humanity, who had sinned and distanced ourselves. And the price of that offense was death. Jesus took on flesh, lived the perfect life, God in the flesh, hung on the cross. And from the cross faced not just death, but the entirety of the wrath of God that you and me deserved. God chose to absorb the cost of our sin so that we might be forgiven. There are people in this room who struggle to receive forgiveness. You could imagine the next day my son coming back from an activity with a friend and there's already a new couch there and him still beating himself up over the couch trying to figure out what he can do to pay for the new couch, only to hear me here, the, couch, the new couch is here. The price has been paid. Just don't wreck this one too. <laughs> there are people who come through our doors who are sitting in this morning, who know God, who've given their lives to Jesus, who have a background in addiction, who've struggled in relationships, who've hurt people, perhaps with their words, perhaps with their fists, perhaps what they've typed on a computer screen. And you feel the baggage, you feel the weight, and you feel the guilt of some of those really terrible decisions. And Jesus, when teaching, he says, he says to the people, he gives a parable of a Pharisee standing at the front of a temple giving God thanks for how awesome he is. And then a tax collector who, who was a hated sinner of the time on his knees in the back beating his chest saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says it was the tax collector, it was the one who had wronged all those people who was humble before God, walked away justified that day. And so to you that need to hear it this morning, you're forgiven. For those who confess, who've turned to Jesus, who've repented of their sin, who come before God in that humble posture, have mercy on me, a sinner. You're forgiven. And David said to God, against you and against you alone have I sinned. When he made some pretty darn big mistakes, when what he was saying in that posture is that the greatest offendee was God and his sin. And there might be people who try to reinvade your life with the guilt or shame associated with your mistakes. And I'm not saying you shouldn't seek out restoration in the relationships that perhaps you've broken, but you need to hear this. You're forgiven. God brings Moses to the top of the mountain and in his mercy, he gives him a glimpse of the land he doesn't deserve to enter. Undeserved favor, I'd call it. It's grace. We find grace in Jesus. I will point out, we're not gonna read it though, that in Matthew 17, Jesus takes three of his followers up a mountain and there his followers see him meet with Moses and Elijah. Why do I say that? because Moses made it into the land. It's called the transfiguration. Matthew 17, you can read that another time. Third and finally, we see God's faithfulness in the land promised to Israel. 
I'm going to read just verse 4. He describes all the area that he saw, but again, it says, The Lord said to him, This is the land I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to your descendants. We lose sight of the fact, church, that this was 400 years in the making. Plus, that the people of God had endured slavery for hundreds and hundreds of years. And there was this, this promise that for some might have been just a figment of the past. They didn't have this like you and I do now. They would have had stories and accounts passed down from family member to family member. And as they heard these stories, who knew if some of the people knew exactly where they were in the 400 years? But God, they were called to cling to the faithfulness and the promises of God in the midst of that. I just want you to imagine with me for a moment, wherever you fall on the political spectrum, if the opposite and the most extreme version of the opposite political party you root for swept the entirety of our government, you might feel a little uncomfortable. But God comes and he speaks to you. And he says, you know what? In 400 years, your descendants won't have to deal with this anymore. Would that make you feel any better? We have such a microwave culture that we want and we need it now. And yet God's plans and his purposes track centuries, sometimes millennia. And the people of God, they clung to him in the midst of that difficulty, knowing that he would be faithful. And after he redeemed them out of Egypt and they went into the land, God continued in his promise and through the prophets made a promise of what would be the coming Messiah. And they waited and they waited and they waited. And it didn't happen in many of their lifetimes. And it was a promise that passed many of their lifetimes by. But eventually Jesus came. And he lived the perfect life that they couldn't. He died the death they deserved. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. And Jesus said that he would come back. And his followers preached that he would come back. That one day, that his kingdom in heaven would be fully consummated on earth. That there would be a new heavens and a new earth. And just like the Hebrews waited and waited to get out of Egypt. And just like the Jews waited and waited for the Messiah we too today find ourselves waiting and waiting for Jesus' return. And it prompts the question, is the hope of a promise worth clinging to if you don't get to see it fulfilled in your lifetime? And I think the resounding answer should be yes, because God is so much bigger than our lifetimes. As you look throughout Scripture, you see that Israel was promised the land and they got it. That's great. God promised them the land that God in the land. But if you go all the way back to the beginning, Adam and Eve began in a garden. Intimacy with God, relationship with God. And the plan for humanity, well, the promise to Israel was get them to the land. The plan for humanity was to get them back to the garden. And that's actually where we end in Revelation chapter 22 in the new heavens and in the new earth. 
And there in chapter 22, it says, then he showed me the river of the water of life. This is all garden language. It's beautiful, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb. Down the middle of the city's main streets, the tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree for healing the nations and there will be no longer any curse. The throne of God and the lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they'll reign forever and ever. I want you to think about this. Moses didn't get to enter the promised land. But in his life, we see constant acts of faith such that he was living in light of the fact that the land was coming. And he knew it and he trusted God for it. Church, do you live your life in light of the eternity that's coming? Do you live your life for this side of eternity or for that? It's coming, it's God's plan, it's good, and he's faithful. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks for the life of Moses. I pray that you would highlight or draw out the areas in our life where we perhaps may be addicted to the easy, comfortable things. Would you fortify us as a people sensitive to the prompting of your spirit who step out in uncomfortable situations as beacons of your light and your love who meet people where they need to be met who give as we are prompted, who invite as we are prompted, who love as we are prompted, who are ambassadors of your kingdom. God, I pray that you would help us to do so and to live now in light of the promises that you give us, even though we may not see you return in our lifetimes. We ask all these things in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.